Two courts, two states, two cases, and one former president. The lead starts right now. Another Trump associate makes his first court appearance in the classified documents case in Florida. The Mar-a-Lago property manager is accused of trying to help delete security footage from Trump's resort. While in Georgia, signs that were close to a key decision in another Trump case. Then the search intensifies for an American nurse and her child who were kidnapped in one of the most dangerous places in the world, Haiti, what the State Department is saying today. Plus a mic drop that could land Cardi B in trouble with the police. The fan throws a drink at her while she's on stage and Cardi B hurls her mic. But this may turn into more than just a water fight. Welcome to The Lead, everyone. I'm Bianca Rodriguez in for Jake Tapper. We start with our law and justice lead and two different cases against the former Trump, former President Trump in two different states. In Florida, Mar-a-Lago property manager is the newest co-defendant in the special counsel's classified documents case. Carlos de Oliveira had his first court appearance today in Miami. He was indicted on four counts, including conspiracy to obstruct justice and making false statements to the FBI. Prosecutors say De Oliveira told another Mar-a-Lago employee that, quote, the boss wanted security camera footage deleted after it was subpoenaed by a federal grand jury. And in Georgia, the Fulton County District Attorney says the investigation into Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election is done and, quote, we're ready to go. Today, a judge rejected President Trump's attempts to disqualify the district attorney and block any indictments stemming from her investigation. CNN's Randy Kay kicks off our coverage today from Miami, where Mar-a-Lago employee Carlos de Oliveira was in court. Uh, so, Randy, what happened inside that courtroom today? Well, it was a very brief court appearance, Biana. He was huddled with his attorney and surrounded by a handful of U.S. Marshals. Uh, he did not enter a formal plea. That is because he had a Washington, D.C.-based attorney with him, and he needed a Florida-based attorney who is barred here in Florida to officially enter that plea. So that will happen uh, next week. Uh, he was also released on $100,000 bond. He cannot discuss the case with any of uh, the potential government witnesses. His attorney uh, was given a list of those witnesses. And his travel is also restricted. He told the judge that he had a U.S. passport uh, that was expired, but the judge still told him that he had to turn over that passport within 48 hours. He entered the courtroom with John Irving, his lawyer from D.C. Now, Carlos de Oliveira didn't speak, but his attorney did make a short statement. Listen to this. The Justice Department has unfortunately decided to bring these charges against Mr. Dale. Keep on and going now, up, now it's time for them to put their money where their mouth is. And Randy, we're also learning another Mar-a-Lago employee, Yusil Tavares, received a target letter from prosecutors back in June after President Trump was first indicted. So what was his role in all of this? I should point out Tavares has not been formally charged, I and mean, it's unclear how much he is cooperating with prosecutors, but we do know that he is, uh, from sources telling CNN, that he is uh, employee number four in the indictment. He's the IT worker uh, that uh, Carlos uh, de Oliveira was talking to, who, who uh, he spoke with in the audio closet, as it's called, in the indictment. He asked him about uh, the security camera footage, how to delete it, how long it lasts. 
uh, on the server and telling him that the boss wants the server deleted. So that is who uh, Yusuf uh, Tavares is. What's key here is that CNN uh, has spoken with some sources, and those sources are telling us that uh, it was the uh, information coming from Tavares that led to these additional allegations against the former president, his aide, Walt Nada, as well as De Oliveira. Back to you. Interesting. Randy Kay, thank you. And another investigation into President Trump is in its final stages. In Georgia, the Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis is expected to announce the findings from her investigation into Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election results in the state. CNN's Sarah Murray is in Atlanta for us. So, Sarah, over the weekend, we heard from the district attorney. What did she say? That's right. Our affiliate caught up with her at a back to school event over the weekend, and she was praising the local sheriff for beginning to take steps to increase security here around the courthouse. She made it clear that some people may not be pleased when she does make her charging decisions over the next couple of weeks, but says her investigation is pretty much ready to go. Take a listen. Some people may not be happy with the decisions that I was making, and sometimes when people are unhappy, they act in a way that could create harm. The work is accomplished. I mean, we've been working for two and a half years. We're ready to go. Now, of course, she has not said if she's actually going to seek charges against former President Donald Trump or his allies in this state, but we are expecting her to attempt to get these indictments before a grand jury. My bet on timing is that we're talking about sometime in the next week or two, not in the next day or two, but we are firmly in the window where she could make these announcements, Bianca. So in the next week or two. Uh, meantime, we know that Trump's legal team has tried to disqualify Bonnie Willis. Today, a judge rejected that, though. That's right. I mean, this was really a smackdown from a judge here in Fulton County. Trump's team wanted Fulton County District Attorney disqualified from the case. They wanted much of the evidence she collected with a special purpose grand jury. So interviews with more than 75 witnesses tossed out. And here is a portion of what the judge said in response to the Trump team taking issue with Fonnie Willis. He said the drumbeat from the district attorney has been neither partisan in the political sense nor personal. In marked and refreshing contrast to the stream of personal invective flowing from one of the movements, which appears to be a swipe at the Trump team. The judge continues, put differently, the district attorney's office has been doing a fairly routine and legally unobjectionable job of public relations in a case that is anything but routine. So now we wait to see if this judge is going to have the last word or if another judge in another court who had been slated to take this up on August 10th still moves ahead with that hearing. Liana? Sarah Murray, as always, you will continue to follow it all for us. Thank you. Let's discuss with CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig and CNN special correspondent Jamie Gangel. Good to see you both. Uh, Jamie, so Trump's legal fees are piling up and his political action committee has spent, we now know, more than $40 million covering those fees since the beginning of the year. We also know that the two co-defendants in the classified documents case, Walt Nada and Carlos de Oliveira, are being represented by attorneys paid for by Trump's Save America PAC. What has the reaction been to these revelations? So, first of all, let's just talk about what a remarkable amount of money this is. The trials have not even started, and we expect more indictments are, are coming. Also, look, big picture, we hear about these millions and millions of dollars in fees. 
I think as we look at today's court proceedings, as we're expecting these other indictments to come, but, but let's just talk about the January 6th documents case. And let's remember this. All Donald Trump had to do was return those documents and he wouldn't be here today. Walt Nada wouldn't be here today. Carlos de Oliveira wouldn't be here today. He was asked over and over again, over 18 months, there is really, it would have been as simple as giving them back. Yeah, and he continues to say that he had every right to possess right. them. Um, meantime, Ellie, is there any indication that De La Vera flips? And if he does, how significant would that be for prosecutors? Well, Bianca, it's quite clear at this point that De Oliveira has not flipped. For one thing, he was just charged. As Jamie reported, he's continuing to use a Trump-funded lawyer. He actually was interviewed by the FBI a few months ago, and he lied in order to try to cover up for Donald Trump. He said he knew essentially nothing about anything. So as of this moment, zero indication that he has flipped. Now, things do change. Sometimes actually finding yourself on the other end of an indictment can be a wake-up call, and people can flip really at any point in the process as long as prosecutors are still interested in that person. I do think prosecutors will remain interested if Mr. D'Oliveira has a change of heart, primarily because he's the individual who, according to the indictment, had a 24-minute phone conversation with Donald Trump about the surveillance system. They don't know exactly what was said there, but if Mr. D'Oliveira flipped, I guarantee you they would want to go into depth on that topic. And this is where he's waiting for legal representation in the state of Florida. Ali, sticking with you, is Yusel Tavera also cooperating? I know it can be confusing with all of these Trump employees involved in this story, but what's the difference between these two specific individuals? So Mr. Taveras is is the person who apparently is referred to in the indictment as Trump employee for all indications are that he is cooperating with DOJ. Number one, he's not been charged. Number two, he reportedly received a target letter. Now, the reason DOJ would send a target letter to someone like that, first of all, is just to warn them, as with any defendant, but also to give them a chance to come in and cooperate. And if you look at the, DO, at the DOJ indictment, there are pieces of that indictment that appear to relate solely to testimony that they got from Mr. Taveras, from employee four. For example, he gives an account of a conversation that he had with De Oliveira, where De Oliveira asked him to delete the surveillance footage. That could only have made its way into the indictment if DOJ prosecutors knew that they had that piece of testimony from employee four locked in. So it appears to me that Mr. Taveras, again, employee four, is in fact cooperating with DOJ. And Jamie, obviously m- multiple investigations we are covering. But I do want to ask you about the one in Fulton County. Is the former president expecting charges in Georgia? How could he not be expecting charges? I mean, when Fonnie Willis says, quote, we are ready to go, uh, it-, it couldn't be any clearer. So, so Donald Trump clearly knows it, it's coming. Look, as Sarah Murray has reported, we're, we're in this window now. We've seen uh, security preparations going. What's interesting, I think, to discuss is the timetable for Georgia, which we don't know yet. But a lot of discussion has been on the January 6th docs case. Uh, could this happen before the election or more likely after the election? Georgia, my understanding is, could be a very complicated case. Obviously, we know Donald Trump wants to push these cases as long as possible. So I think that's going to be something we'll look at once we see the indictments come down. Boy, it's looking like it's going to be a busy August in Georgia, potentially Florida, and even potentially D.C. Um, Jamie and Ellie, thank you. 
Well, the new numbers that spell trouble for Ron DeSantis' presidential campaign and what it says about Donald Trump and the Republican nomination. Then one Supreme Court justice is telling Congress to mind its own business when it comes to one very sensitive topic. Stick around for more on this. In our politics lead, today a new sign that the campaign reboot for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis may not be going according to plan. A New York Times Siena poll shows former President Donald Trump crushing the GOP field. And while DeSantis is still in second place, he trails Trump by 37 percentage points, a jaw-dropping amount. CNN's Steve Contorno is following the DeSantis campaign in Concord, New Hampshire. Uh, Steve, DeSantis today laid out his new economic agenda, but it's really in the shadow of this poll and it must be a gut punch to the campaign. What are they saying? Certainly this is not the kind of poll you want to see after you reboot your campaign, Biana. And especially today, you saw him go up on the stage and, and he held a press conference where he actually said he wasn't going to take any questions that weren't about his economic proposal. So clearly this is not something he wants to talk about. And why would he? It shows Donald Trump, this poll, 54% to Ron DeSantis is 17. But I want to talk about some of the underlying elements of this poll because they really get at the heart of some of the problems DeSantis is having with his central argument. He has said that he would be a more effective executive than Trump. He is someone who can come in and get his agenda accomplished. Well, Republican voters right now disagree. 67% said Trump would actually be the better nominee to get stuff done. DeSantis trails at 22. What about electability? That's been a big part of his argument as well. Well, Republican voters again think that Donald Trump is better suited to take on Joe Biden. 58% think he would be able to beat Joe Biden to 28% for Ron DeSantis. Now, it's early, we're still in July here, and that's something that the DeSantis campaign has stressed. They said that he is just starting to speak to voters one-on-one, -on -one, but it shows the difficulty that he is gonna have and the uphill climb he faces as he reboots his campaign and tries to look ahead with a more forward-looking vision, Biana. All right, Steve Contorno, thank you. Let's discuss more with Ashley Allison, CNN political commentator and former National Coalition's director for Biden-Harris 2020, and Dan Eberhardt, GOP political donor and CEO of Canary. Thank you both for joining us. Uh, Dan, let's start with you. In an interview with Rolling Stone magazine, mm -hmm. Republican strategist Ed Rollins is really laying the blame for DeSantis's inability to connect with voters, at least thus far, on DeSantis himself, here's what he said. I don't think it's the campaign's fault at all. It's his. I think he's been a very flawed candidate at this point in time. I don't see how DeSantis is going to turn it around. I think it's going to be Trump's game. And at this point in time, I would be shocked if Trump were not the nominee. You are a former Trump donor, now a DeSantis donor. How do you respond to that? Look, I think it's early and I think you've just got to ask, you know, President Hillary Clinton or President Jeb Bush. Both of those folks were, you know, way out in front and, you know, Barack Obama came from behind and win because and won because he had a better message and connected with voters. I think as voters in Iowa, New Hampshire, and again, those polls matter more than the national polls, as voters in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada get to know Governor DeSantis and what he's accomplished here in Florida, I think that you're going to see people coalesce around him. Trump is a weak front-runner at 50-something percent. He's much weaker than, you know, Biden, and he lost the last time anyway. I think that, uh, you know, Trump's numbers are very weak, and he's an ice cube that's going to melt. 
So what is DeSantis's message, if you don't mind me asking? I mean, he spent the first few weeks focusing on cultural issues. That didn't seem to work for him. He's talking about the economy today. I know you highlight specifically what he's done in the state of Florida, but thus far, that's not resonating nationally. Well, look, you know, first of all, I would say that Governor DeSantis won one election uh, to the governorship in 2018 with 1%. He got reelected with 19% or almost 20% of the vote in 2022. I think his voters got to know him more and saw he delivered on his promises. They liked him more. But I think that his message, you know, to answer your question more specifically about, e- about economic growth, about being a conservative without the baggage of Trump, and his message about, you know, what he's going to bring in terms of an energetic executive that's pro-America, I think is going to resonate very well with primary voters and with all voters in the general election. And you're going to see him coalesce support. Look, no, none, of the, none of the undecided voters are going to break to Trump. If, they were going to, if they're not with Trump now, they're not going to be with Trump. They're going to break to folks like Governor DeSantis. And it's a two-person race. So I think so you're going to see he- him build support. And I think you're going to see Trump leak. So, Dan, why is he Go avoiding going after Trump at this point then? Well, I think that he he's to decided to not go into the gutter with he's decided not not to go in the gutter with Trump on, you know, some of these divisive personal attacks. And he hits back on policy. He says, look, these he said in the past, these are Trump's policies. He didn't actually get the wall built. He had, you know, added trillions in debt to the uh, national deficit. He didn't solve the immigration problem. DeSantis has hit back on policy. It's not as flashy, but it's much more substantive. And it shows real, real regular Americans what he's going to do for folks, not just sound bites. And I think that that's, that's how Governor DeSantis is. When you, when you meet with him in person, when you hear him speak on the, on the stump, he talks about policy and what he's going to do. Trump talks about all these side issues and who he hates and who he has grudges against. And I just don't think that's going to fare well. Trump hasn't faced primary voters in seven years. And I think when he does, he's going to be in for a rude awakening. Well, actually, there's a difference, obviously, between general election and primary. And another bad sign for DeSantis in this poll, I mean, take a look at these numbers. 58 percent of Republicans say Trump has better odds of beating Biden, while 28 percent said that of DeSantis. You know that electability was a key argument of DeSantis's candidacy. So how should he be selling himself, if you were perhaps to, to be advising him, if this argument right now isn't holding? Well, right now, well, I, I, don't I think, think what no, I'm sorry. Let, let's let's get, let, get Ashley to weigh in. Well, right now, it doesn't seem like Ron DeSantis has a very clear strategy, even though he attempted today to introduce a new economic message. He still continues to go back to his what seems like to be his core around the cultural issues. He's not going after Trump. And I understand um, the other guests saying that he doesn't want to go tit for tat, but Going after Trump is not going tit for tat. Going after Trump is saying, you know, he tried to compromise our whole democracy. He tried to overthrow the election. He also isn't focusing on the other candidates that are in the race. Now, in order for Ron DeSantis to close the gap with Donald Trump, he has to be able to shrink that field. If you're with Donald Trump now, you're most likely not going to jump ship. But there still are a host of candidates that have a few percentage points that are actually taking away from Ron DeSantis being able to close that gap. So he needs to focus on the people he's actually running against and get off of these culture wars and tell people what he's really going to do. And then Republican voters can decide if he's the one. The final thing I will also say is that 
the one thing about politics, particularly in a primary, is you have to be charismatic. You have to be doing that retail politics. And it seems like every time Ron DeSantis goes out and tries to shake hands with voters, it's not really landing with the folks in Iowa. So even if he can't break through nationally, he's still not being able to break through at the state level, which really requires ground game, grassroots organizing, people being in all the counties in Iowa and New Hampshire and those early states able to connect and understand who this candidate is, who this campaign is. And he just hasn't been able to do that to date. So, Dan, how do you respond to that question over whether he's just charismatic enough and whether he's a people person enough? I mean, I know he got a lot of heat for uh, telling a, a young child that, that her icy hat had too much sugar in it. But aside from that, uh, you say that he's out there meeting voters and they are surprised and happy by what they see. That doesn't seem to be resonating, though, to, to Ashley's point. Well, I, I disagree with that. Look, on Friday at the Lincoln Day dinner in, in Iowa, you know, Governor DeSantis was the only candidate that got, that got a standing ovation. I'd also tell you, I've been, I've been around him. He's made, me, he's made me laugh. He's joked a little bit. He's in general a serious guy. He's, uh, you know, an, an ex-member of the, of the uh, Navy forces and a veteran. And I think that he's going to be an energetic campaigner, an energetic executive. I think Trump is the low energy, low energy jab of the 2024 cycle. I also think that Governor DeSantis, all, all, you know, what she said about the seven dwarfs, which is what I call the other folks in the race, those folks are going to get out as we move through the calendar and we hit, and we hit December, November, December, January. Those folks are going to get out of the race and those voters are going to coalesce around Governor DeSantis. They're not going to go back to Donald Trump. They left Donald Trump for, they left Donald Trump and they're searching for someone to support. Those folks are going to coalesce around Governor DeSantis because it's a two-person race. You know, you, see, you already see Mike Pence struggling to make the debate stage. You know, Asa Hutchinson and these others not making the debate stage. Nikki Haley's going to run out of money. When these folks get out, their voters are going to coalesce around Governor DeSantis because they weren't with Trump to begin with for the 2024 cycle. This is a two-person race, and we're going to see at the end of the day, I think Ron, or Donald Trump is a, is a melting ice cube, and Governor DeSantis is going to build support, and he's going to add, you know, Lego blocks to his base of support. And we're going to see, we're going to see him, uh, you know, be victorious in Iowa and New Hampshire. Ashley, how do you see uh, voters responding to the news that the Trump's leadership PAC has spent more than $40 million on attorney's fees for himself and his associates? Now, his argument is that, that I'm taking the incoming for you, right, that they're coming after you and I'm standing in the way. Is that really resonating and selling? Well, look, I think if you support Donald Trump now, you want him to be able to defeat the legal challenges that he has. So you are donating to the victory of Donald Trump, whether that be for president of the United States or whether that be to overcome his legal challenges. So I think people will continue to donate there. He's raising more money after every indictment. So I do I don't think that voters or, or donors are going to turn their back on them. The one thing I will just say about the other point about the debate stage, Donald Trump is likely not to come to this Republican debate in August. And so it is really anybody's game at that opportunity to come out as the front runner who can beat Donald Trump. And so while you have a people like a Nikki Haley and a Tim Scott who are trailing Ron DeSantis, they have an opportunity, they have a real opportunity to shine on that debate stage and become the person that's going to take Donald Trump down in the Republican nomination. All right, Ashley Allison, Dan Everhart, uh, thank you. Uh, if I could, if I could. Quickly, quickly. Dan. Uh, I, look, as a Republican donor, I think the fact that he spent $40 million on his own legal defense is galactically absurd it, and offensive. All right. We'll leave it there. Thank you. 
Up next, what we're learning about an American nurse who was kidnapped along with her child while working in Haiti. That story's up next. In our world lead, an American nurse and her child were kidnapped in Haiti four days ago, and there's still no clue as to who took them or where they might be. The Christian nonprofit that Alex Dorsonville had been working with says they were taken Thursday near the capital city, Port-au-Prince. That's the same day that the U.S. State Department asked all Americans to leave Haiti amid an increase of gang violence in the country. CNN's Paula Newton was in Haiti earlier this month and is following this story for us. So, Paula, what are U.S. officials doing to try to find Alex and her child? Well, all they can, but you can imagine how difficult it is. They say that they are in contact with Haitian authorities, uh, and that includes police and government authorities. But the truth is, Biana, they don't have any control over this country, least of which the capital, about 80% of it is by the government's own admission now in the hands of gangs. The UN says the same. It's extremely violent, and kidnappings have been a problem for a while. Um, Now, this nurse from New Hampshire and her child, what is so alarming is that they were taken directly from the charity. And I can tell you, having visited these charities, that they have a compound. They usually have some kind of security. They assume they're safe, right? These facilities for these charities are within that compound. So the charity itself in a statement said, look, they were taken directly from their Christian, from their community service is what they're saying. Um, But this is a person, apparently, the charity says, who knew all the risks, but decided that she had to help patients and was, in fact, gratified by her work. I want you to listen now to Alex Rosenville in her own words. Listen. Sandro invited me to come to the school to do some nursing for some of the kids. He said that was a big need that they had. At first, I didn't think that there was going to be much of a need there, but when I got there, there were so many cases. Haitians are such a resilient people. They're full of joy and life and love. And I'm so blessed to be able to know so many amazing Haitians. You know, and Sandro, who she referred to at the top there, is her husband. He is also the director of the charity. And uh, I'm sure all of us Mm -hmm. can imagine the terror that they're feeling right now, especially because there is such a young child involved here. Again, we wait to hear word. Uh, They are saying it is best not to speculate on anything like ransom at this point. They are just trying to get a hold of the people who have captured them and to understand what the demands are and why they're still captive. And tragically, these stories are becoming increasingly common there. There's been a surge of kidnappings and violent clashes between gangs and then the police in Haiti. What did you see while you were reporting there earlier this month? You know, I think what was interesting in all my times going to Haiti, really in over 12 years now, uh, what was interesting was how much that wave of violence is now affecting the entire country. That is not to say that in the Southwest, where we spent most of our time, that it was as violent as Port-au-Prince. But people were paralyzed there. The gangs have basically have a stranglehold even on all the transportation routes. And beyond it, it goes right to the fact that health workers aren't where they're supposed to be. Clinics are being closed. Farmers are not planting their crops because they can't get them to market. The UN is saying what is needed is an international uh, force that may happen in the coming days, but still will not happen soon enough for uh, this family. They continue to await for more uh, information from Haitian authorities. Yeah, you'll continue to follow this story for us as well. Paula Newton, thank you. Well, now to Ukraine, where hundreds of rescue workers are trying to pull people from the rubble in President Volodymyr Zelensky's hometown of Kribiri. This after Russian ballistic missiles killed at least six people and injured about 70 others, according to Ukrainian officials. 
Meanwhile, U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and other Western allies are preparing for next week's peace talks in Saudi Arabia, spearheaded by Ukraine as Russia's leader Vladimir Putin insists an, ag an agreement will be impossible while Ukraine is on the offensive. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh is in the southeastern Ukrainian city of Zaporizhia. And Nick, what is the outlook for these peace talks? Yeah, I mean, peace talks is an interesting way of characterizing them. I think it seems more about trying to galvanize a position with the United States and Ukraine leading the way there between countries that may in the past have shown some sympathy with Russia. Uh, there are African nations there that may possibly, Saudi Arabia may be being chosen because of its closer relationship with China, perhaps, who have at times voiced significant support uh, for Russia or appear to be holding back, though, from direct military uh, aid being given to them. So these talks don't involve Russia, so it isn't straightforward peace negotiation between two warring sides, but it does appear to be aimed at trying to create an environment in which African nations, as I say, who may have had some sympathies with Russia in the past, understand where Ukraine feels about this. It is quite clear, I think, frankly, from here, that if we did suddenly see a ceasefire uh, emerging, as has been mooted, that would simply concretize the territorial gains of Russia's invasion over the past 17 to 18 18 months. And so while Ukraine's counter-offensive moves forwards to retake that land, Vladimir Putin suggesting that they couldn't possibly agree to a ceasefire. Important to also point out too that Russia doesn't normally engage in diplomacy in good faith. They've used it in the past as a chance in order to try and refit to buy time to achieve their military goals. And of course, Ukrainians here today, not only hearing of the six dead, including a 10-year-old girl in Krivi Rikh, also learning about shelling against more civilian targets in Kherson that's left four dead and 20 injured. These civilian death tolls constant every day now as Russia seems to vent its rage on the ordinary population here. Biana? Just terrifying. Nick Payton Walsh is up at Asia for us. Thank you. Well, Republicans claimed he would deliver evidence connecting Joe Biden to his son's business dealing. But what did Hunter's former business partner really tell the Republican-led House Oversight Committee? That's next. We're back with breaking news. A man fired shots and tried to gain entry to a Jewish day school in Memphis, Tennessee this afternoon. That's according to Memphis police. CNN's Ryan Young has more. Uh, Ryan, what happened here? Yeah, this news conference just wrapped up about 11 minutes ago. We learned from police that this man showed up at the door around 1230 and tried to gain entry into this academy. And he could not get on the inside of that academy because they had the double door system. And at some point, he started opening fire on those doors, that academy calling 911. They were able to get police there very quickly. The man took off in a pickup truck. And because of the pictures that the surveillance cameras were able to capture of the man, they were able to put out a pretty good bulletin to try to find the man. Then there was a traffic stop. The man, apparently, according to police, exited his truck with that weapon in hand and officers opened fire. From what we're told, that man's in critical condition right now. Now, it appears that school was closed, but you can see nowadays with all the active school shooters that we've had, those double doors really did their job in terms of keeping this man out. We're told the TBI and the FBI is investigating in this. No motive right now. They haven't been able to talk to this man, but you can understand a Hebrew academy with a man showing up with a loaded weapon trying to gain entry. Luckily, they were able to stop him from getting inside. Yeah, just horrifying. Uh, thank goodness Absolutely. no one was injured. Ryan Young, thank you. Thank you.
When our politics lead, a new twist in the Republican-led investigation into President Biden's son, Hunter Biden. Today, Devin Archer, Hunter's former business partner, testified behind closed doors before the House Oversight Committee. Joining us now is CNN Capitol Hill reporter Melanie Zanona and senior White House correspondent Kayla Tausche. Kayla, welcome to the network. It's my first time welcoming you. Uh, Melanie, let's start with you. What more do we know uh, about Devin Archer and why did lawmakers want to talk to him today? So Devin Archer is a former business associate of Hunter Biden's. They both served on the board of a Ukrainian energy company and Republicans thought that he could reveal key information about President Joe Biden and whether he was involved in any of his son's foreign business deals. That is a link that the White House has furiously denied. That's a link that Republicans have yet to establish. And one of the things that Republicans were particularly interested in was whether President Joe Biden ever spoke to any of Hunter Biden's business partners. Now, Democratic Congressman Dan Goldman, he was present for today's deposition, and he confirmed that Hunter Biden did put Joe Biden, who was then vice president at the time, on the phone, on speakerphone, multiple times, almost 20 times, in the presence of his business partners. But Goldman was adamant that business was never discussed. Take a listen. There still is no connection of any of Hunter Biden's business dealings with President Biden. Hunter may have put his father uh, on the, the phone with any number of different people, and they never once spoke about any business dealings. As he described it, it was all casual conversation. And a source told my colleague, Zach Cohen, that Archer testified that Hunter Biden was selling the illusion of access to his father, but never provided any evidence today linking President Joe Biden to his son's business deals. And according to this source, he also testified that he had no knowledge of any allegations about a bribery scheme involving Joe Biden and a foreign national. Now, Republicans are saying that they are continuing to believe that this testimony shows Joe Biden lied to the American people and that he was involved or had some sort of knowledge about his uh, son's business deals. And Republicans are showing no signs of letting up in these probes. Meanwhile, former President Donald Trump continuing to push Republicans to go after Joe Biden as he faces legal issues of his own, Biana. And Kayla, meantime, how is the White House responding to any of this? Well, the White House has been silent about most of these issues, but today, Biana appears bolstered by those takeaways from Congressman Goldman. Uh, in a statement to CNN, uh, Ian Sams, a spokesman for the White House Counsel's Office, says it appears that the House Republicans' own much-type witness today testified that he had never heard of President Biden discussing business with his son or his son's associates, or doing anything wrong. House Republicans keep promising bombshell evidence to support their ridiculous attacks against the president, but time after time, they keep failing to produce any. The official line from the White House had been from the White House press secretary that President Biden had never been in business with his son, and the president himself several years ago said that he had never spoken to his son about business. And it was that comment by the president that Republicans were trying to get Archer to refute. The White House has also talked about Hunter Biden's legal battles and business dealings as personal matters. And uh, but there is one personal matter that President Biden is weighing in on, and that is Hunter Biden's child in Arkansas, Navy Roberts, which President Biden and his wife, the First Lady, Dr. Jill Biden, have acknowledged as their seventh grandchild in statements beginning on Friday and again in a podcast released this morning. Uh, talking about his seventh grandchild, talking about how important family is, and a source telling CNN that the president does hope to meet her one day. Uh, we are still waiting on.
on those plans. Biana. All right, Kayla Tashi and Melanie Zanono, thank you both. Well, the behind-the-scenes drama at the Supreme Court and why one justice is telling Congress to mind its own business. That's next. In our law and justice lead, the U.S. Supreme Court is at a stalemate. But this time, the debate is over creating a formal code of ethics for the justices to abide by in the wake of public criticism over reports of lavish travel and potential conflicts of interest. Democrats in the Senate have been pushing legislation that would impose new rules on the court. But in a recent interview to the Wall Street Journal opinion pages, Justice Samuel Alito said, quote, Congress did not create the Supreme Court, and I know this is a controversial view, but I'm willing to say it. No provision in the Constitution gives them the authority to regulate the Supreme Court, period. Here is CNN senior Supreme Court analyst Joan Biskupic. Uh, what's at the center of this ethics debate, Joan, and these comments from Alito still reverberating? Well, good to see you, Biana. And you know that there's just been an escalating controversy over the fact that the justices do not have a formal code of ethics as lower court judges do. But we have learned that Chief Justice John Roberts has been working very hard behind the scenes to try to ha formalize some code of conduct, but he wants unanimity. He wants all the justices to sign on. And when they left town in June, after they finished their uh, recent session, uh, they were all at an impasse. And these comments from Samuel Alito suggest what kind of resistance the chief is facing as they try to have some sort of unanimity here. Uh, you, you, you made that uh, great uh, quote up on the screen about what uh, Justice Alito said about Congress's interference, but Justice Alito all, also said, hey, we already follow what the rules that lower court judges follow. We're not sure if they do because it's hard to find out exactly what they're abiding by because they have no written code. And then Justice Alito also attributed the, the current problems over the uh, complaints about legitimacy of, over the court, not to the justices themselves, but to outside critics. And now this interview that he did with the Wall Street Journal, Biana, actually raised its own questions about conflicts of interest. One of the writers of the piece that ran in the opinion section of the Wall Street Journal is uh, David Rivkin, who has a current case before the justices. In June, the justices accepted his petition to hear this tax case. And David Rifkin also has represented, uh, has uh, defended Justice Alito to Senate Democrats who have inquired about Justice Alito's travel with a hedge fund billionaire uh, that was not disclosed. So as Justice Alito brushed aside concerns about conflicts of interest and tried to defend the court saying no one else will defend us if I don't speak to the Wall Street Journal. He raised new questions about conflicts, and these are all going to play out as the justices return for their new session in October. Biana. Yeah, so curious to hear what these other justices think about Alito's comments. Um, Joan Biskupic, thank you for that insightful reporting. Thank you. Well, the water fight between Cardi B and a fan that police are now investigating. That's up next. Back with our pop lead, Grammy-winning rapper Cardi B acted on that warning this weekend. Well, now the Las Vegas Police Department is investigating. On Saturday, she chucked her microphone at a fan at a Las Vegas concert, visibly infuriated after that fan threw a drink at her. 
Las Vegas police say the incident was documented on a police report, but no arrest has been made. Cardi B's concert tussle is hardly the first. Artists such as Harry Styles, Pink and BB Rexa have been clocked and even injured by flying fan objects. Folks, just be respectful and enjoy the show. Well, that is it for us this hour. I'm Bianca Goladriga in for Jake Tapper. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.